and welcome to On Focus, brought to you by the Focal Therapy Clinic, where we connect you with issues facing men diagnosed with prostate cancer that are little known, less understood, and almost never talked about. Prostate cancer is now the most commonly diagnosed cancer in the UK, and with this somber fact comes a multitude of challenges and opportunities. I'm Claire Delmar. Joining me today is Tony Collier, ambassador, awareness speaker, and fundraiser for Prostate Cancer UK. In May 2017, while training for an ultra marathon, Tony was told that a groin strain was in fact prostate cancer that had spread to the pelvic bone and was working its way throughout his skeletal system. In his words, a worst case prognosis of two years was a real shock, but I was even more shocked when I discovered that if I'd requested a PSA blood test every year from age 50, I could have had curative treatment. If only I'd known. Now it's my mission to make sure other men know. Tony's here to discuss his campaigns and the messages he wants all men and their loved ones to hear regarding prostate cancer. Tony, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Claire. It's a great pleasure to be with you from um, a rather dull, overcast, wet Manchester, UK. Yeah, it's actually pouring rain here in uh, London, so I think you've got the better deal. (laughs) (laughs) So, Tony, let's just start off. I mean, I I introduced a little bit about who you are, obviously, and, and, you know, some real highlights about, you know, the fact that you were or still are a a keen runner. I mean, earlier on, you've actually been an ultramarathoner, and then you received this diagnosis, and now you've become a campaigner. So, can you restart this conversation by sharing with us just what you would say were the key events in your journey with prostate cancer thus far? Yeah, sure, Claire. I was a runner. Um, I started running when I was 45, quite late in life. I ran my first marathon when I was 50. Now, which one and, was that? Um, I think it was Brussels in, uh, in Belgium. Okay. Um, no, actually, it wasn't. It was uh, Amsterdam. And then mm-hmm. Brussels was the second one. Okay. And then went on, I went on to do um, another 18 marathons, having said never again 18 times. 18? Yeah, I ran 18, I ran 19 in total before the age of 59. Wow. So from 50 to 59, 19 marathons. Um, what was your uh, was, PB? Oh, PB was three hours 23, so I was a pretty decent, um, yeah. you know, sub-elite runner. Wow. Um, I've done one marathon since my diagnosis, which was London. Um, And strangely, it's the one I'm most proud of. I ran it in five hours and seven, but I've been on um, hormone therapy for a year, which had a massive effect on my running ability. Mm -hmm. Um, But I raised £13,000 for Prostate Cancer UK. So I'm actually most proud of that one. Yeah. My running career sort of um, took a step up when I heard about this incredible race called the Comrades Ultramarathon in South Africa. And um, I decided I was going to do that. And eventually I got around to entering in 2015. This is a 56-mile road ultra that climbs six and a half thousand feet. It's often 28 centigrade and quite a challenging uh, race. Wow. So I I turned up in 2015, but I picked up an injury six weeks before um, and basically had to bail out after 17 miles. And then the following year, 2016, I completed it. One of the proudest moments in my life. Very, very emotional. Nine hours, 46 for two back-to-back marathons and a 5K. Oh, my Um, gosh. The 5K at the end was the slowest 5K I've ever run. But then the, the relevance of Comrades is that I was training to run it again in 2017. And in April 2017, I ran two marathons uh, a week apart, Manchester, UK and Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, ran them as training runs relatively slowly, but I picked up what I thought was a groin injury. You could barely um, get my right leg out of the car. Mm-hmm. And that became a bit of an issue because obviously Comrades was on the horizon and I still wanted to do it. And 
basically I saw a sports injuries doctor. This was on the 8th of May 2017. We mm -hmm. had a prearranged MRI scan on the groin area. The MRI scan obviously showed up something untoward. And um, he sent me there and then for a chest X-ray and blood tests. And you can imagine my shock. You don't need those for um, a groin strain. Mm. And then he said to, he said to me, um, just because I want to rule out anything untoward, tomorrow I need you to go and have a full body CT scan. And of course, you can imagine that evening, uh, my wife and I were just struck with fear and terror. Of course. Absolute terror. Sleepless night, horrendous. And I went for the CT scan on the 9th of May, 2017. I went to my running club that evening and the doctor phoned me as I was leaving running club at eight o'clock and said, I'm really sorry, but I'm 95% certain you've got prostate cancer and you'll need some more tests. So yeah. we had more tests, bone scans, biopsies, all the usual stuff. And I was told about 10 days later that I'd got stage four prostate cancer. I found out it spread virtually throughout the skeleton. It was in the pelvic bone, the hips, the ribs, the spine, the neck and the skull. And then the most scary thing is my wife asked the urologist at the first meeting with him, how long do you think Tony has had this prostate cancer? And he said, probably 10 years, oh. judging by the extent of the spread. And of course, that meant I'd had it from age 50 through to when I was 60 when I was diagnosed. Yeah. It also meant I'd run 19 marathons and one ultra marathon with cancer inside yeah. me. So no, um, no symptoms? Absolutely symptomless, completely yeah. symptomless. If I think back to you know, the months before my diagnosis, the only thing I can think of is that my ejaculations were weaker, but I put that down to uh, aging um, mm -hmm. as you get older. Mm -hmm. So that's the only, the only thing I can think of. The groin strain started around the February. I first started feeling the pain February 2017. And it turned out it was actually stress fractures of the pelvic bone where the cancer had eaten into the pelvic bone. And so um, that was what was causing the pain. So your um, first PSA test ever was during at, at this time? First PSA test ever was on the um, 8th of May 2017 when the mm -hmm. sports injuries doctor sent me to have one. Yeah. And I, re I remember seeing the blood form that he asked for the blood tests and he'd written PSA because we don't do PSA tests as standard in the UK. Mm -hmm. He'd actually handwritten PSA. I had no idea what PSA meant. It meant absolutely nothing to me whatsoever. Mm -hmm. I then went on to obviously further treatment. Started by salutamide for 28 days. First uh, injection of Prostap partway through that 14 days. And then three monthly Prostap injections after that. And I was due to have docetaxel chemotherapy on the sort of 23rd of August, about three months after diagnosis. Well, mm -hmm. in June, because I was so open about my diagnosis, people knew about it. Lots of people contacted me and told me about this new wonder drug that had been announced at the cancer conference in Chicago in the June of 2017 called Abiraterone. Yes. And I basically talked to my oncologist about it and he decided that my private medical insurers might fund it for me. And they did. Mm -hmm. And so I went on abiraterone ever since. My PSA at diagnosis was 129. Wow. Um, and it stayed at zero for the best part of three years now. Okay. And um, my Gleason score was a five plus four, so Gleason nine. Yeah. So quite, a, quite an aggressive cancer. But I think the biggest shot for me was that I'd had it for 10 years. Yes, of course. And, and then moving on from that, that basically leads to why I became an advocate. 
Um, yes, exactly. So tell us about that. How, how, what, how has this led to uh, this role as an advocate and campaigner? Well, to be honest, I started off, I was absolutely furious that if I'd known that I could ask for a PSA test from age 50, in fact, I had a right to a PSA test from age 50, if I'd known about it and actually done something about it, because of course I may not have done something about it, Mm-hmm. If I'd had a PSA test every year from age 50, I could have had curative treatment. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to make sure that other men knew they would end up like me if they didn't go and have a PSA test. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think this is a really, really important message. Until we have a screening program for prostate cancer, we are not going to catch men until they're too late, like I was. Mm-hmm. And I want to make sure as many men as possible are diagnosed early because early diagnosis equals curative treatment most of the time. Mm-hmm. And so I became um, an advocate for Prostate Cancer UK. I'm an awareness speaker, been a fundraiser. My family were the uh, faces of the 2018 Christmas appeal, which raised probably near a million pound. Mm. Um, I've done some television interviews, radio interviews. I've written articles and basically, I make as much noise as possible. Yeah, you're quite the social think... media star. <laughs> well, I try my best to be out there as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you know, this is something that we are seeing much more of. I think men are now much more vocal. And I think that's a really important point. Um, instead of sort of, oh, pro- you've got prostate cancer, it's a horrible disease. And, or, you know, what, what, what's that all about? And people shying away from being open and honest about it. I think we've seen... An, a change in attitude people are becoming much more open about it and I think my openness was something that my wife and I agreed from from the start this is actually really an important point I was very happy and uh, about being open about my uh, my diagnosis and treatment and uh, prognosis mm-hmm. but my wife had to be as well for me to be I, I couldn't have actually been as open unless she wanted me to she was comfortable with that I didn't want her to be in a difficult position so indeed, indeed. We, we, we both agreed that it was the right thing for us to do. No, it's a, you know, it's interesting because that's, um, you know, one of several themes that, that I've been particularly interested in. And we've seen with the, the patients who come to us, you know, the, the, the wife or the, the partner is often the advocate and is affected clearly in, in multiple ways as well, clearly needs access to support and information. So I just want to pick up on something you said a minute ago about some of the changes you've seen in this sort of three-year period. And you mentioned about men um, talking about this more and that you were very open. You're, you've been very demonstrative around that. So in addition to that, and, and, and maybe the PSA is a place to start, but what changes have you seen in that short time that you know, might even give hope or, or give caution to, to other people, you know, whether they're, they're medical changes or you mentioned attitudinal changes or behavioral changes? I'd, I'd be really interested to hear what you think about that. I think Prostate Cancer UK have been very effective in raising the profile of prostate cancer mm-hmm. and, and using celebrities to do so. So when uh, Bill Turnbull, the newscaster, and Stephen Fry, the actor, yeah. Yeah. were open about their illnesses, mm-hmm. we ended up with something called the turnbull Fry effect, where basically more and more men simply went to the doctors and asked for a PSA blood test. Mm-hmm. The other impact that Turnbull and Fry had is our job as awareness speakers became much easier. We were pushing an open door. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been a massive sea change. Originally, you know, getting to do a, uh, an awareness talk was really difficult. We met obstructions. We met, I think, situations where people were not very comfortable about it. But because it was now much more in the public domain, we were pushing against open doors. And I think that's been really, really important. 
And what have you seen as some of the most open doors in terms of channels? I mean, is it, you know, football clubs, golf clubs? Um, you know, wh where have you found these doors to be particularly open for you? Well, I think in my own case, because I was a runner, I wanted to tell my story to running clubs. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a bit of an issue because obviously running clubs are all fit young men. And, uh, and, and even when you get to veteran stage, they're incredibly fit men mm -hmm. and women. Um, yes. and, and I think it was um, for me, it was something I really wanted to, to do. I, I decided I was going to tell my running story, the story of my running life, about running all six of the world marathon majors running comrades, some funny anecdotes about running life, but then link it into my diagnosis, which was basically brought about by running. If I weren't a runner, I still probably wouldn't know to this day that I had yes. this thing inside, inside me. So I chose to entitle my uh, talk, Running Into Cancer. And I approached loads and loads of running clubs uh, in my area of England. And we basically managed to get in front of as many people as possible. The running talks were really well received. So for me, that was great. Um, but I think the, the other issue was when I spoke to people about telling them to go and get a PSA test. Initially, I was meeting uh, obstruction to that. People saying, well, my GP says I shouldn't have one because do more harm than good. But the Turnbull Fry effect had a massive mm -hmm. impact because people actually then knew that they should, in fact, be having these tests. Mm -hmm. So it made, it made my, uh, my story easier. Just to shift a little bit about some of the changes you've seen in, in behaviors, and there's some good news there about getting out there and, as you say, this, this Turnbull Fry effect. In fact, I think just um, you're probably aware that one of the outcomes of that effect was, I think, the first ever interview in, in was it the Lancet or the BMJ, where Stephen Fry actually was interviewed by his, um, his urologist. So there yeah, was, I, yeah, I think it really mm. penetrated lots of, um, yeah. lots of spaces. But just want to shift a little bit to... And, you know, in the fact that you've seen um, so many different groups of men and, you know, I, I hear what you're saying about running community, but obviously you've even gone broader than that. And what I'm wondering is how many health inequalities you've noticed in some of these groups, because, you know, one of the things that, that we're certainly seeing are some very significant health inequalities, particularly, particularly for men over 70. And uh, I mentioned earlier about women and partners and, and, and black men. And I'm interested in what your experience is with these groups and, and what thoughts you have on, on empowering them. Okay, well, I think the first thing is that my perfect audience to speak to drug and awareness talk is a group of women. And that's mainly because they're very influential. And yes. They go home and make sure their men go and have a PSA test. Mm -hmm. So a group of women is definitely worthwhile speaking to. And do you do that very often? I try my best. Mm -hmm. um, I, always, I always make sure when I do workplace talks that they invite the ladies along. I think this issue about inequalities is probably uh, more of an age thing. I'm particularly uh, interested in seeing new drugs come on stream because I think new drugs are something that will hopefully prolong my life. Mm -hmm. and, for, and for me, abiraterone has been incredibly, incredibly successful. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the big issue at the moment in the in England is that it's not available as a first line treatment for men newly diagnosed um, with castration sensitive metastatic prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, and that means basically men in the UK diagnosed stage four with metastases go on to docetaxel uh, chemotherapy. And the big problem is that the, the older uh, the man the greater the chance of having comorbidities and the less likely they are to tolerate docetaxel chemotherapy. 
and its toxicity. Mm-hmm. But they but they still can't uh, access these drugs like abiraterone and enzalutamide on the NHS. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a clear inequality. And it's interesting to see that uh, Prostate Cancer UK, when they appealed to NICE about the prescribing of abiraterone as first-line treatment, basically looked at the elder population, particularly mm-hmm. with a view to saying, you know, these, these men can't tolerate docetaxel to the same extent, and we are therefore denying them a treatment that will prolong their life. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so I think there's a massive inequality as people get older. Um, I think support for partners is incredibly limited. I mean, whether that's the partner of a gay man or a trans woman, or whether it's a heterosexual partnership, mm-hmm. but the support for partners is really, really limited. Mm-hmm. Um, there are not enough cancer, uh, clinical nurse specialists and very little psychosexual support. Mm-hmm. And, one, and one of the big issues with um, a terminal diagnosis of prostate cancer is being on lifelong hormone therapy is loss of libido and erectile dysfunction. Yes. And it's very, it's horrible because it affects both part, parts. Of course of it does. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, I mean, it, 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 and it's something that's troubled me ever since my diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that you've got to be able to talk very openly with your partner about. And mm-hmm. we were very fortunate that we actually did have access to a psychosexual therapist, mm-hmm. specialist, uh, clinical nurse specialist. Um, and she was fantastic. And w- one thing that stuck in her mind from our conversations with her were that the hormone therapy removed your drive, but it didn't remove your desire. And I think mm-hmm. that's a really, really, really important message. It's something that we've both clung to. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we try our best to maintain as much intimate contact as possible. But I think the support for women is dreadful. Um, mm-hmm. I know I can turn to people if I'm having a bad day. Mm-hmm. Um, I can seek help if I have a really bad day. And I know where to go to, but I despair about who supports my wife if she's having a bad day. Mm-hmm. How does she cope? Who helps yes. her? And I don't think that level of care is available for the partners of, of any patient with cancer in the UK, but to the same extent it should be. So I think there's a massive inequality there. Um, no, I, I, I agree with you. And I, I see lots of evidence of that. I think the other thing I wanted to just pick up on was about um, the, the drug access that you talked about a bit earlier and, you know, how some is available, some isn't, and, you know, what can be tolerated, particularly um, with older men. And, you know, so to the extent that there is this, this disconnect between what's out there, but what's actually accessible or available, how, how do you see this changing? And do you think, you know, campaigns and advocacy like yours is a key part of this? Well, I think access is still appalling and it's still very much a postcode lottery. Mm-hmm. The fact that you can get abiraterone as a first line treatment in Scotland, but can't in England is disgraceful. And it all boils down to pounds. It's nothing, any, anything other than that. It's all about the money. It never takes account of the patient. They don't take the patient's views into account. Mm-hmm. Chemotherapy for many is life-changing and abiraterone and enzalutamide, much less so in my opinion. And I think for me, abiraterone has been incredibly beneficial as a first-line yeah. treatment. I can't see much changing, to be honest. It takes mm. way too long for drugs with proven efficacy to be approved for patients. People are dying earlier as a result, and it's so difficult to get the patient voice heard. The abiraterone appeal to NICE, patient advocacy was vital, but it was incredibly limited. They wanted examples of older people who would have done better on abiraterone and the docetaxel, but there is a limited audience for that. Yes. Um, and I think this has got to change. And I think patient advocacy 
is one way of making that happen. We need to be very vocal. We need to stay as loud as possible. Um, but I'm not holding my breath that we're going to see change very quickly. You know, finally, Tonya, you have been in very recent times, you know, in the, in the so-called COVID era, a very strong advocate for the rights of cancer patients and, and also, you know, so, some of the issues we've talked about for different reasons, like, like inequalities, like mental health challenges that have just been exacerbated um, through COVID. Do you have any messages that you'd like to share here around that? I think the big message really is that people are obviously suffering mental health issues because of covid Whilst living with cancer as well, you can imagine that I don't want to spend my life locked down, not seeing friends and not seeing family when I know that I've got a shorter life expectancy. Absolutely. And it, do, and it does prey on my mind inevitably, and it, it must prey on other people's minds hugely. And I think the, the most important message is it's okay not to be okay from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're feeling really down, then there is help out there. And I remember back in October 2018, I had a really terrible spell. My sister was in the process of being admitted to a hospice to die of breast cancer. We, we were away in Mallorca where I ran the Palmer 10K and had a terrible run. I was having business problems, primarily because I was trying to get out of business. Uh, I had to spend life enjoying myself a bit more. Mm-hmm. And basically everything got on top of me. And I had an absolute total meltdown and I came back and I was constantly in tears, um, shaking, anxiety, depression. Um, and I went to seek help. It is not weakness to seek mm. help. No. Strength. So I would urge anybody having a really, really tough time with COVID and a comorbidity or just with COVID and the general mental health issues seek help please go and seek help it's so important so tony how do our listeners find find you do you have you know lots of things you've referred to you mentioned some some videos i think um i mentioned social media is there a couple things you can say just quickly about how people could to to find you maybe engage with you or certainly access your campaigns sure i uh, i have a website called running into cancer which okay. is a it's a blog site so i've told my story in there And I do write occasional blogs. Um, I've probably done nine or ten, but most of them are about my running life and running into cancer. Mm -hmm. Some some of them are about the horrors of living with prostate cancer. Actually, there's one on there that's I think is called Living with Prostate Cancer, The Good Bits, because it's not all been bad. You know, I've done things since I was diagnosed that I would never have dreamt of doing. Back in 2019, no, 2018, I was a model in a fashion show oh. uh, and start, starred on the catwalk underneath Concord at the Manchester Aviation Viewing Park. Oh, wow. Uh, well, that's an um, incentive alone to go to your website. Yeah. And um, basically, uh, everybody on it was a, a person who used Maggie's uh, centre at oh, yeah. Christie, Manchester. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we basically, we, we had about 10 different catwalks, fashion show in the afternoon, 650 people, a gala ball in the evening, 450 people. And, and I was asked if I would do a speech in front of 650 people. And I'm not very used to public speaking, but I remember quite vividly that um, Rick Astley, the singer, oh, yeah. was actually, he was actually performing free of charge and like doing the, the, the disco at the evening gala ball for free mm-hmm. of charge, just to support the charity. And Rick, Rick was in the front row and I got up and did my speech about living life with cancer. And I remember looking down and looking at him, he was in, he was in tears. Wow. And 
I think it's that profound effect that you can have by telling your story that's really, really important. And I think that I've been able to do things that I would never have dreamt of doing. So the television interviews, for example, radio interviews, I do those because it's really important to spread the word. I don't want any personal glory from it, but spreading the message about going to get tested is so vital. And I would never have had the the, the soapbox to do that from mm-hmm. without, my di- without my diagnosis. Yep. No, indeed. So running into cancer, I'll make sure that that's on um, the, the transcript and on the, the link. Yep. Um, Tony, I just want to thank you um, hugely for, for speaking with me today. It's been, it's been a real honor and a real pleasure. Thank you. It's been wonderful to talk to you as well. And I hope Good. we can get the message out to more men. Go and get, Absolutely. That, PSA. Absolutely. Go and get that PSA test done. Absolutely. A transcript of this interview is available on our website, where you can also access information and insight on living with prostate cancer. Thanks for listening. And from me, Claire Delmar, see you next time.